to the Group B preview podcast here on the World Football Index, taking you through all eight of the World Cup groups. Today, we will focus on a group with plenty of intrigue. The two European neighbors, Spain and Portugal, and a pair of potential spoilers in Iran and Morocco. Very happy to have you along for this podcast. I'm your host, Austin Miller, joined by... Firstly, Henry Bushnell, who writes for Yahoo Sports here in the States, who will be covering both Spain and Portugal for us. Henry, you and I know each other pre-pod, so it's very good to have you on the show. You're somebody that I've wanted to get on WFI for quite some time. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Austin. I've been been wanting to get on the pod for a while, so this is my first time, and I'm I'm excited for it. And covering Iran for us today, we have Sina Samian, who is an Iranian based in the United Kingdom. Sina, you and I were talking pre-pod. So happy to have you on the show. Just about that convincing that you do of yourself that when the draw comes out, this group, oh, it looks so difficult. But now, as the World Cup gets closer, you've probably talked yourself into Iran having a chance, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And as as you said, I think that's the same with, with a lot of the fans of, of different countries. And as time has gone on, we're just, we're just really excited to be in the World Cup and, uh, and uh, you know, Looking forward to going up against uh, some of the best players in the world, of course, in Spain and Portugal, as well as uh, probably the best African nation in uh, Morocco. Well, Sina, we're very happy to have you on. Your expertise will be welcome. And finally, covering Morocco for us, we have Benjamin Haji, who's actually based in Norway. Benjamin, very good to have you on. What's your connection to Morocco? What makes you a Moroccan football expert? Oh, uh, well, good question. Thanks for having me on, firstly. Um, uh, well, my dad is, is, uh, is Moroccan, so... I have that connection. I go to Morocco every year, so I've just I've just learned to grow up with a with a Moroccan football culture, and um, yeah, finally excited to to be in the World Cup. Yeah, it's been quite some time for Morocco since 1998, so it should be fun to have them back in the competition. We'll focus in on all four of the nations as we go here today, as well as give you some players to watch. And finally, we'll close with predictions from all of these analysts and myself as well. I'm going on the record on all four podcasts I'm hosting, and I will probably be very, very wrong on all four of them. But let's start with the headliners in this group in Spain. Henry Bushnell, this is a very, very good Spanish side. They had the struggles in the 2014 World Cup, and then they were knocked out by Italy at Euro 2016. But this is a very good team with a lot of very, very good talent. It absolutely is. And for my money, they're joint favorites at worst in this World Cup. I know a lot, a lot of people seem to have them a slight step below Brazil and Germany, maybe. I don't, I want to say I, I don't want to say I ignore the 2014 and 2016 tournaments, but I don't really think they're as relevant as a lot of, as a lot of people think they are. And, I mean, this team has not lost under Lopetegui, and I can absolutely see them winning the World Cup. And that was my question for you, the first question here. As you said, they've not lost under Lopetegui. That's obviously a very good result, considering they had to come through qualifying in Europe, which, again, does have its fair share of minnows. But, you know, you've got to beat some decent teams as well. What has made Lopetegui so successful in charge of this Spanish side? Or is it simply just a question of he has a lot of talent at his disposal, which is going to make the job always easy? Well, I think it's both. Because, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people thought that this team maybe not had to overhaul themselves, but they had to change after uh, the two failures in 2014 and 2016. Uh, But Lopetegui, his background is in the Spanish system, in the with the youth teams. Um, so he's he's brought through a fair amount of these players that are actually now in the senior team. Not not a majority of the squad, but a few of them. And he's sort of stuck to what he, he's introduced his own little wrinkles, but he's stuck to what uh, Spain has been so renowned for in the past. Uh, and I think that mix, you know, not totally changing everything, 
Um, but but tweaking things here and there. And yes, as, as you said, they just I, I for I think they have maybe the second most talented squad in the World Cup. And I mean, if you just look at the players that are left out of the 23, like you could build a quarterfinalist or a semifinalist with those players as well. So it's a really talented squad and they, and they fit together well. And Henry, as, as you said, there was plenty of success for Spain before those failures in 2014 and 2016. They, of course, won back-to-back Euros in 2008 and 2012. And in the middle of that, of course, won the World Cup in South Africa in 2010. What changed for Spain, you think, that kind of led them down that dangerous path that had them failing in 2014 and then not being able to win in 2016? And what do you think Lopetegui has done to kind of put them back on that path? Because as you said, they are unquestionably one of the favorites heading into Russia. I think they're probably one of the three kind of co-favorites in in most people's minds, along with Germany and Brazil. You know, people will pick hairs between all three of those, but this Spanish side are certainly among the favorites. What has he done since... 2014 and 2016 coming in that is that is you know made this Spanish side maybe change the way that they've played and allowed them to be more successful so a few things about 2014 and 2016 for first of all I think we get caught up like the sample size is so small it's basically three games um and I think we get caught up a bit too much in that um they obviously had a tough group in 2014 and it's like Chile especially was a team that was built to beat them um and I think for so long they like they had become reliable. So much ran through Xavi, and Xavi was not the same in 2014 as he was four years earlier or six years earlier. Um, so I think you know opening up the midfield a bit, introducing even more fluidity, and they also did get a bit too caught up, in my opinion, in sort of that like defensive possession and the tiki taka, if you want to call it that. They were they, they were possessing the ball for control. Now there's a bit more purpose to it uh, under Lopetegui, uh, from what I've seen. And they're not, like, they, they do have a bit more youth to them. They still have a lot of experience, um, but it, it's not, like, I, I just think in 2014, that generation of players um, that was sort of structured around Xavi had become a bit past their primes, um, and, and that was the issue. But again, like, we're talking about three games uh and yes like three games on the big stage and international soccer sample sizes are small and like inherently uh but i think we put a bit too much stock into that and not enough stock into everything else that makes this team great henry as we get into talking about the 23 that are in the squad here for spain it seems like so many of them with a couple of exceptions on either end are right in the prime of their careers there's so many 27 year olds 26 year olds 29 year olds in this squad there's a couple of the veterans of course sergio ramos nacho monreal iniesta and there's a couple of of younger guys in marco asensio in saul but so much of this squad seems like they're right at the perfect time to have a major tournament. And I think that's part of what is going to allow Spain to be so successful. Yes, they're always going to have talent in Spain. There's never going to be a question of, is there enough talent for a Spanish side at the World Cup? But not just do they have the talent here. It seems like even De Gea, the goalkeeper, everybody who is important with the ex- with only a few exceptions is right in their prime. Right, and I think the thing is that those few exceptions, whether you're talking about in maybe Iniesta and even Busquets had, had, did not have a ba- great season at Barcelona, like maybe those those two are a bit past their primes. Iniesta is certainly past his prime, but he's still great. But the thing is that they have, if you know, if Lopetegui decides that these guys are past their primes and that they need fresh blood, there are guys like Saul and guys that they can bring in, like like Thiago. Um, I mean, Thiago might start anyway, but there are replacements if they need them. 
So I, I don't think the yeah the the slight age concerns aren't an issue. And yes, this this squad is they're they're primed to get to a World Cup final. So Henry, how do you expect to see Spain play when they take the pitch to play Portugal in that first match? Who do you think will be in the eleven? What are kind of the question marks that still remain? Obviously, one Danny Carvajal, who we saw get injured in the UEFA Champions League final, he's a big question mark for Spain heading towards the World Cup. But where are some of the other kind of points of interest to you when you see that first eleven come out at the start of the World Cup? Right. So the back five, uh, including De Gea and goal, is pretty set. Aside from Carvajal, who, I mean, if he's fit, he'll play. If he's not fit, I assume it'll be Espilicueta. Um, there, there are basically two questions. One is, I think there's actually a slight question in midfield. Um, you have probably four players who could start in uh, Sergio Busquets, Thiago Alcantara, uh, Iniesta, and probably Koke would be like three of those four will start. Other than that, David Silva on the right wing probably, uh, as not, not obviously as a true winger. Uh, Isco on the left, and then the other question is up top, where there are basically three options, and I'd give them each a 33.3% chance to start. It's Iago Aspas, Diego Costa, and Rodrigo from Valencia. Uh, either of them, they, they've all started in friendlies or qualifiers, or maybe Aspas hasn't, but he has played in a recent friendly and was the best Spanish striker in uh, La Liga this year. So I, I think any of them could start. That's the main question uh, that they'll have to answer. And Henry, I know you've written pretty, not necessarily extensively, but you've written pretty adamantly for Yahoo that you want to see Iago Aspas start. And not only do you want to see him start, you think if he starts and gets the majority of the chances, he could be a golden boot contender here at the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, he was he was, he was was a joy to watch in La Liga for Celta Vigo this year. And he, I just think he fits the, st- fits the Spanish style and fits with these players better than the other two. Now, that's obviously not based on too much that I've seen of him playing with Spain because he hasn't played a significant amount of minutes for the Spanish does team. does have eight caps uh, and four been... goals, though, which is pretty impressive, at least as a start. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, yeah, he, he came off the bench against Argentina in that friendly, and I think he probably got 25 minutes off the bench and scored two goals. Um, so, yeah, he... But, he, I mean, yeah, I think he had 22 or 23 in La Liga... Uh, this year for Celta Vigo, he was fourth behind the three you'd expect, Messi, Ronaldo, and Suarez. He can play in transition. He has that. He is a bit like of underrated pace. I think people saw him when he played for Liverpool in the in that short stint in the Premier League and thought he didn't have the pace, um, but he but he has, and he also has the trickery. He has the know-how in the penalty area. I, I see him as fitting better with Spain's plan A. I see Diego Costa as a really good plan B, you know, that bruiser and that bulldog in the box. But when you're a team like Spain, I don't see why you should start with a plan B up top. I think you go all in on your plan A because you're good enough to win with it. Not a bad plan B, Diego Costa is. Is he not? <laughs> if Diego Costa is oh, no, the, the no. guy that you have as your plan B coming off the bench, I think just about every other national team in the world would take that. I know four years ago... Brazil probably wouldn't have been opposed to having Diego Costa for them. Uh, personally, I'm just waiting for Diego Costa to make his valiant return to his homeland about six years from now and start bagging in the goals for his beloved Palmeiras, also my beloved Palmeiras. But that's a podcast for six years from now. So, Henry, how far can this Spanish team go? They're among the favorites. It wouldn't be a surprise to see them lift the World Cup. Do you think they will? If they will, why? If they won't, why not? So they're my pick right now, as of now, um, subject to change until June 13th. But yes, I, th- I think they will. And it's really, honestly, it's it's mostly about the defense. I think they have the best 
most solid and back line in the world and they have the best goalkeeper in the world, that just gives them a solid base for everything they want to do going forward, which everybody has seen over the years. So yeah, I'm going with them. Uh, they're, I think they're absolutely a semifinal team. There, there are three teams that I think are absolutely semifinal teams. Anything could happen from there. Uh, but yes, if I had to pick right now, I think I would go with Spain to lift the trophy on uh, July 15th. And Henry, as we close out here this segment on Spain, we've talked about most of these players are our veterans and right in their prime. And looking up and down the squad list, most of the names are recognizable. Is there maybe an under-the-radar guy, whether he's young or not? A lot of times this segment takes the place of a young kind of up-and-coming player. But with Spain... You know, everybody is so well known. But is there somebody under the radar in this Spanish squad that you maybe expect to have a good World Cup that maybe the expectation wouldn't be that, maybe coming off the bench? So, I mean, we already talked about Iago Aspas. Like, I think he could become, especially for play, people who maybe follow the Premier League, the English Premier League, and don't so much follow La Liga and think of Aspas like they connect him in their mind to his Liverpool days. He would be a guy. Um, eight months ago, I would have said Marco Asensio. Um, I didn't think he had a great season um, at, at Real Madrid. Uh, but if he gets some opportunities off the bench, like he, he could be a guy that you know really is, is known by a lot more people than he is now. Um, but it, again, he's a big name. Like the, I mean, the other one would be Isco, maybe. Like if people don't recognize Plays for Real Madrid. As, I don't know if you can qualify Isco as right, under the radar okay. here, Henry. <laughs> okay. okay, fair enough, fair enough. So, yeah, we'll go with, uh, I mean, yeah, Aspas would be my pick. In, in in fairness to you, it was a pretty difficult question to try and find somebody under the radar in this Spanish side. Uh, final question, Henry. David De Gea, is he the best goalkeeper in world football right now? Yes, with Manuel Neuer injured, yes. And even when Neuer gets back, given what De Gea did this last season, I mean, he was worth, like, at least 15 points to Man United. He was off. Awesome. He's still, I mean, he's still, he's not the perfect goalkeeper. He still has a couple holes in his game, but he's certainly the best shot stopper in the world. And yes, I would peg him as the best goalkeeper in the world right now. All right, Henry, we'll hear more from you later on Portugal. But now let's shift in and bring Benjamin back into the conversation as we talk about Morocco. Benjamin, we said earlier, this is the first World Cup for Morocco since 1998. They've not advanced out of the group since 1986. Do you have reason to believe that that can change this year, even with this difficult group? We're obviously not favorites in the group, but um, there's a lot of optimism in Morocco right now. We... uh... We feel like, especially with the the arrival of our new coach, Hervé Renard, things have really changed. Everything from the atmosphere in the team to to the optimism uh, optimism in the stands. So, um, and after a great qualifying as well, we we're we're governing with optimism. Yeah, Benjamin, like you said, that great qualifying for Morocco. They didn't concede a goal in the final round of African qualifying. They and Iran are both very good defensively in this group, and I think that's what it makes it so intriguing. What do you think will be the key for that Moroccan defense to kind of carry over to the World Cup? Obviously, the opposition certainly takes a step up here on the world stage. Who or what do you think is the key for that defense here at the World Cup? If we're talking about our keys uh, individually, it's definitely our captain, Mehdi Benatia, Juventus player. He has been... He's been rock solid at the back, and he's got Roman Sace with him uh, at center back, uh, who just got promoted uh, with uh, Wolverhampton to the Premier League. So um, it's going to be, it's just like you mentioned, it's going to be key for us to keep that defense uh, heading into the World Cup and try to to base our play on a on a solid defensive defensive uh, unit and try to to create opportunities on a counter or with our players that are able to to provide us. Um, 
higher up the field. And who do you think those players will be, Benjamin? Who do you kind of point out in this Moroccan squad as being key to those counterattacking opportunities, as being key to creating those goal-scoring chances? It feels like it's the type of situation where there may not be that many chances for Morocco, so they'll have to be very clinical when they do create them. Yeah, the the, the go-to player for Morocco tonight is definitely Hakim Ziyech. Had an amazing season at Ajax as well. I think he had um, 17 assists in the in the Dutch league and um, he's really been incredible since he since he came in and we learned him from the from the Dutch national team yeah, I think he has eight eight or nine goals in 15 games for Morocco and uh, just a constant threat so he's he's going to be our main player offensively and then we're just going to hope we can create those one or two opportunities to to give us uh, give us points Benjamin you mentioned the manager earlier Hedder Renard the Frenchman now in charge of Morocco a little bit of experience in Africa before he joined what has he done in this Morocco side maybe as far as the mindset of the players or just in the style of play because as we said they were so ridiculously successful during qualifying yeah he was uh, I remember before we got him he was probably the most sought after manager in Africa at the time I think he's now also the highest paid manager in Africa and for good reason he, he won the Africa Cup of Nations with both Zambia and uh, Ivory Coast I think is the only manager who's done that with two different nations as well it's just he's just completely changed the mindset of the whole team I think um, I think it's brought a style where that's maybe more suited to us we've we've always been kind of naive and uh and arrogant especially with the ball because we have a lot of uh, technically good players but uh it's it's nice to finally see a team that's actually a unit and not just a team full of um individual uh, technical players and benjamin i want to ask you now about the mood in morocco not just heading into this world cup but also that decisive vote morocco uh is in the running for hosting the 2026 world cup uh, what is the mood like in Morocco around football right now? What's kind of the football and culture and, and how are they kind of viewing this World Cup? The funny thing right now in Morocco is that it seems like people don't even know about the 2026 World Cup hosting vote because we're so happy to finally be back in the World Cup. I don't think there's many countries that gets more affected by by an event like this than in Morocco. It's It feels like Morocco is the World Cup right now. We have we have national team gear everywhere in the country, and um, I think the public is just really excited to finally be back. And yeah, we're, of course, we're still optimistic about the about the 2026 World Cup. Hopefully we can uh, get that as a, as a little bonus heading into the World Cup as well. Do you think that getting the rights to host that World Cup would have any effect on, in this squad for this World Cup, even if just a small one? Well, hopefully it will have a positive effect if we were to get it. I personally still think it's 50-50 at the moment. I have, I have no idea how, how it will end up, but... um. Yeah, of course. If we if we were to get that on top of actually being back in the World Cup, that would be I think that would be a great great um, thing heading into the first game against Iran. Henry, I want to actually bring you in here now to talk very quickly about this 2026 bid. It, it feels like it's on topic here. I know you've covered a lot of this. You're fairly plugged in in United States soccer circles. How do you see this 2026 bid going? Would you agree with Benjamin's assessment? Do you kind of view it as 50-50 right now? Do, do you see it leaning any particular way? Yeah, it absolutely does seem 50-50, which, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people in the United States sort of assumed maybe, what, eight months ago or whatever, that this was a foregone conclusion that the uh, that the North American bid would get it. Um, but there are various reasons that, uh, various, like, very legitimate reasons that it's absolutely not a foregone conclusion. I, I would agree that it's 50-50, maybe leaning a bit, uh, towards the North American bid, um, but it's interesting. You know, Benjamin said that people are all focused on the on this upcoming World Cup in, in Morocco. That's obviously not the case here in the United States. Um, and the United States really is 
all in on this 2026 bid. The the new U.S. Soccer Federation president, Carlos Cordero, and the other bit, like he has spent his first 100 days in office basically flying around Europe and Asia and Africa and, you know, trying to trying to drum up support for this bid because they realize it absolutely is not a foregone conclusion. And there are various reasons for that from the president of the United States to the time difference for a lot of like European nations for a World Cup that would be hosted in Morocco versus in North America. So yeah, it it, it is up very much up in the air. Should be interesting to see how that bid process and that vote plays out on the eve of the World Cup and what, if any, effect that will have on this World Cup. Benjamin, bringing it back to you and back to this Moroccan side as they head to the World Cup, who are some of the kind of under-the-radar potential breakout players in this Moroccan side heading to the World Cup? There's certainly some youngsters in this squad. I see a couple of 20-year-olds, a few 21-year-olds, even a 19-year-old. Uh, who do you think will kind of break out on the world stage at this World Cup for Morocco? Oh Well, when it, when it comes to the to the youngsters, they're actually probably one of the the more known players in Morocco. Uh, I mean, Harit in, in Schalke, who just, who's just awarded with the Bundesliga Young Player of the Season. And also Ashraf Hakimi in uh, Real Madrid, who was just crowned Champions League winner. So so they're actually one of our one of our more prolific players. But uh, in terms of breakout player in the World Cup, I have really, really high hopes for Mbarak Boussoufa, uh holding central midfielder. I've, I've talked a lot about him on Twitter because I'm I'm so excited to finally be able to see him on the biggest stage. He's, he's actually 33 years of age now. He's going to turn 34 in August. And he's still never... Uh, been in a in one of the top five leagues in Europe. He started his trade in Belgium, uh, but somehow he still ended up in the Russian league and was there for four or five years before he is now uh, applying his trade in the United Arab Emirates. Well, it should be very interesting. We'll come back to you in just a minute, Benjamin, but I want to focus in on Iran now for a little bit and bring Cena in. Back-to-back World Cups for the first time in their history. It started with the defense in qualification. They didn't concede in that final round until they already had qualification in hand. Is it a fair characterization to say that as Iran's defense goes, that's how they will go at this World Cup? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you've put it perfectly there. Uh, Coming back to the fact that we've qualified for two back to World Cups, I don't think that should be undermined at all it's the first time we've done that and it's because it's a very that's because it's a very difficult thing to do we're usually not a country that has a lot of consistency when it comes to when it comes to football whether it's in terms of getting the most out of a a generation or having a manager for so long to to achieve that consistency so I think it's 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 brilliant to see that um Carlos Carus has, has done some great work in the past seven years and and that great work has been mostly built on top of that great defence that, that you mentioned. Um, in his early years, in the first couple of years, I'd say he struggled a little bit to to find the right rhythm, to find the right system to play with the players that he had. But I would say, uh, I think early 2013 was the time that he decided on a set of uh, a, a set way of playing, a, a certain uh, game plan that he stuck with uh, all these years and has carried that. Um, in the qualification for this World Cup as well. Um, it, look, we are historically uh, a country that produces a lot of technical players. And I think listening to Benjamin as well, it's, it's very similar to Morocco. Um, we've had some great defenders, but uh, we are not known uh, historically for a, for a great defence. And I think um, playing a defensive game has, has sort of divided opinions in Iran um, in terms of... Uh, what Carlos Kerridge has brought, but there's no questioning the results. There's no questioning the success that he's had with this team. And and I think 
this generation of players going into this World Cup, uh, they're probably not the most talented we've ever had. They are a very talented group, group, but I would say probably the 2006 group was more talented. But as a team, certainly in my opinion, there's no doubt that this is the best team we've had playing as a unit. And it's, uh, and that's mostly because of that defensive unit uh, that you mentioned. I want to kind of get into that defensive unit a little bit more because it's. I think it's... It's so easy to paint with a broad brush when talking about these World Cup squads. Oh, they're very good defensively. What is it about Iran that makes them good defensively? Do you think it's individual ability? Do you think it's a collective way of play in the back? And kind of segging off of that, do you think that they can keep it up against high-level foes in Russia? There's no doubt about it. It's an impressive record in Asia to not concede until qualification is already in hand, but it's coming against Uzbekistan and against South Korea and against Syria. It's not coming against Spain and Portugal. So do you think that going into this World Cup, that defensive consistency can continue? Well, let me start with this. Um, growing up in Iran, uh, certainly in the early 2000s and even into 2010s, every time... There was a discussion on, on TV between experts or even former players and when they asked, why do you think we're not getting the success that we should with the players that we're producing? Most of the time, the answer was we play, and, I, and I'm quoting here, emotional fo- football. And I think with Carlos Queiroz, we've managed to get the most of that emotional football, you know, with that kind of mentality. And there's no better way to, to make the most out of that mentality with uh, backs to the wall performance, and uh, you know, of course, a defensive performance. And I think he's he's done that perfectly. And he, and that defensive unit, of course, tactically, uh, he's done brilliant work. But I think mentally as well, he's prepared the players so well. He, they're willing to fight every single minute for him. And I think that's something that goes missing a lot, certainly in terms of, especially when fans and and, and experts from. Uh, Europe and other uh, places around the world watch Iran that they don't notice that, that this togetherness in the team has never existed and it's, it's there because of Carlos Kerrigan and what he's brought but in terms of on the pitch you're absolutely right um, I think one of the challenges that he's had is uh, convincing the Iranian FA which is kind of known for his incompetence uh, to to get um, top level opposition uh, you're right you know teams like Uzbekistan uh, like South Korea like Syria like China, with all due respect, they're not the uh, they're not the uh, Spains, they're not the Portugals, it's more certainly not the Morocco, and um, that's been a challenge that he's faced with uh, for seven years now, and I think it goes further back even before Carlos Kerrish's time. Uh, some people say it's due to politics and and what goes off in the world, uh, what goes on in the world of politics that Iran can't get top level opposition, but it kind of comes back to mismanagement as well. Uh, we just had a, a friendly against Greece that we were supposed to play. Uh, I think it was on Monday, uh, this Monday coming, and it was cancelled due to many reasons that's been mentioned. And then there was a replacement friendly against Kosovo, which got cancelled within 24 hours after confirmation, which, again, there's a lot of reasons you could put that, put that down to, but certainly comes down to mismanagement and, and incompetence. So Carlos Kairos, one of you know, one of the things that he, he gets told off um, in Iranian media, people that criticize him is his uh, high wages. And they say, why should the manager get such high wages? But, you know, when you consider the fact that he, he's not getting much support from the FA, he's not getting much support from the Iranian government in terms of infrastructure, in terms of training facilities, in terms of friendly plans, that wage, that salary is sort of him saying, you know, if you want me to deliver the work that I'm doing without all this support, then, you know, you need to, you know, I need to be uh, rewarded for it. So 
I think that's that's a that's a big question that can only be answered in the 2018 World Cup. But in 2014, I think one of the reasons that we came undone in the very last game against Bosnia was because of the fact that these players, and back then there was a lot of players that were playing in the Iranian domestic league, which is certainly uh, no competition for players who play uh, in Europe. They they were physically and mentally uh, absolutely tired by the third game. And that again comes back to not having the right preparation, not having the right friendlies, to be used to that sort of intensity, to be used to that sort of quality of a position. But I think in these four years, maybe Kerouj has managed to find other ways to to deal with that um, lack of support, to deal with that lack of uh, top-level opposition. But, um, I mean, we, we have to wait and see... Um, what happens in the in the coming weeks? Um, yeah, just uh, touching upon uh, what you just mentioned there. Uh, I remember because you mentioned uh, mismanagement and the the cancelled friendlies, and that was my impression as well. That it seemed like something was I don't know if something was going on um, behind the scenes and with the with the rumors about um, Kira's being unhappy. So I was just going to ask you about if if there is some truth to that or if if you think that will have some some effect on the on the Iranian squad as well. Well, it, I mean, it's a very good question, but this conflict between Kairos and the and I put this as Iranian authorities, which includes the Iranian FA and the Iranian Sports Ministry and uh, above them, the Iranian government. He's had this conflict with them for a very long time prior to the 2014 World Cup uh, on the very same issues, on the lack of support, lack of money, lack of friendlies. And that has carried on into into this World Cup as well. There's a lot of things that I could, I could go on, even the simple things, and I'm even embarrassed to mention it, such as uh, the training kits, Have the, having the right training kits. Go back to the last World Cup and if you watch the last two minutes of every Iran game in the World Cup, the players don't swap shirts with the opposition because <laughs> it's, it's, it's hysterical. The fact that they, have, they didn't have enough shirts to be able to swap shirts with the opposition. And I remember there was a, there was a conflict over who gets to have Messi shirt after the game against uh, Argentina and only one player was allowed to swap shirts with him. So these are the kind of things Kairos has had to deal with. And of course, he's unhappy. He's been unhappy for, for many years but he's in every interview that he does and he's a very charismatic figure and I think that's one of the things that I really like about him that he manages to get people on his side specifically his players he says that the only reason that he stayed uh, in Iran is because of the love that he has for his players and because of the love that he receives from his players there is no doubt that this squad and every single one of them uh, play every single second for Carlos Carriage and everything he says there's no doubting it. There's, he's made some massive decisions in these last few years in terms of who gets into the squad and who doesn't. He's left some big names out, especially for this World Cup. We, we have a centre-back called uh, Jalal Hosseini. He's arguably the best centre-back we've ever produced. He's, he's had over 100 caps. He was 36 years old, but I would say he's probably still our best, best centre-back. And no one could believe the fact that he left him out, out of his final squad. No one could believe it. But the players didn't come out and say a single word. Whereas if it was any other manager in the last 20, 25 years, the players would have come out, even the players in the squad, the player that was left out and criticised the manager uh, for days during the World Cup, after the World Cup. But there's been none of that. And I, that goes to show the togetherness that this squad has because of Carlos Queiroz. There's rumours that he's going to leave after the World Cup, just like there was back in 2014. I'm not sure how true they are because of how many times I've, I've read Carlos Kerouch has, has resigned. 
it's a tactic for him to get what he wants to get uh, that support that he wants or even the slight support Cena when this Iranian team does look to go on the attack and, and it probably won't be very often and it will probably mostly be on the counter who are the key players going forward for them who are the names that you look at and you kind of pick out and say when we have those chances this is who we want them to fall to because they will be clinical and they'll finish them so in regards to your question um there are a few good talents playing up front. I think uh, compared to 2014, is the exact opposite. In 2014, we had a struggle of of having a real number nine. Uh, in this, for this World Cup, we have um, four or five uh, strikers on top form. Um, we've currently had to leave out Kovar uh, who plays for Char- uh, Charleroi in Belgium, and he was one of the top goal scorers in the league. We, and he had to leave him behind. That's how congested that uh, number nine spot is. But the starter, without a doubt, will be Sadar Osman. Uh, uh, I would say the poster boy of this of this generation coming through. He currently plays for Rubin Kazan in Russia. He's spent majority of his career, I would say all of his career in Russia. He's um, had some uh, big clubs in Europe coming after him, but for now he's decided to stay there. Um, and I think this is, a big, this is a big tournament for him. I think this could be the tournament that he proves to some that doubt him, that he is, um, you know, the talents that everyone, everyone, majority of people touts him to be. And I think um, he's got many qualities that that set him aside, certainly for this Iran side. He's a player, and I like him to Didier Drogba in some terms, that he's a big game player. Um, he's not a player that will score 20, 25 goals a season for you. But when you have a big game, there is, uh, certainly in my mind, there's no question that you want him to lead your line. He's um, technically very good. He has a huge leap, um, which means you know you got to be you know he's very dangerous on crosses and, and, and set pieces as well. If we do score, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets one or two of them. Another player um, is Ali Reza Jahanbakhsh, a player that has had a phenomenal season in Holland. I think he, him, and Hakim Ziyech, as uh, Benjamin mentioned, were the two best players in the in the uh, Dutch top division. He, I think, he had he was a top goal scorer. He scored 22 goals, and I think he had 14 assists. He's had a fantastic season, linked with Napoli. His performances haven't been that great for the national team, but I don't think um, the opposition uh, will uh, underestimate him at all. So I think those two are certainly the most uh, threatening players that we have uh, we we score a lot of goals of set pieces i know Kerish works on them a lot but apart from them there's a couple of other players Mehdi Tarami who plays off the left wing he scores some important goals in the world cup qualifiers uh, but it will mostly uh, through uh, those two players i'd say Jahan Bach and Osmund and everyone else usually chips in but this is not a team that relies on individuals it's it's a team that plays as a unit so um i wouldn't i wouldn't point one player out as the star man that will get uh, every goal or, or every assist. I think Osmoon and Jahamash will be involved in most of them, but I think the rest of the team will definitely chip in as, as much as possible. See, now there was a bit of controversy in Iran around the inclusion of Esan Hajasafi, who was initially banned for life after his club team played against the Israeli club Maccabi Tel Aviv, and he decided to play. Now he's in the World Cup squad. Can you kind of explain that controversy to the listeners uh, and kind of how slash if it was even resolved? Well, of course, outside of football, there's a lot of tensions, as, as I'm sure a lot of people would be aware of, between Iran and Israel. And um, generally, um, athletes in Iran, when they compete in, in international tournaments in any sport, 
if they go up against Israeli opposition, they're encouraged. Well, not encouraged. They're told not to, not to play, um, and that goes throughout majority of sports. And I think it mostly happens in martial arts when Iran goes to Olympics and and and, uh, and international tournaments. But in football, it happened. Um, it wasn't just Ehsan Safi, It was Masoud Shajai as well. Um, we set to become the th- uh, the first player, first Iranian player to play in three World Cups. Uh, those who played for Panionios of, of Greece, and as you said, they were playing against, I think it was Maccabi Tel Aviv, and both of them decided to play. And both of them said, look, you know, uh, we have a contract with this club. Uh, we can't just turn around and say we can't play for, for any reason. And this is a relatively small club in Greece, so it was a big deal for them to play in the Europa League qualifiers. Um, and Shojoy and Hosafi were two of the most, uh, the two of the highest players, highest paid players in the club. Um, so of course they played. There was um, a lot of controversy from the government. I wouldn't say there was a lot from the fans, from the people. I would say from the government there was a lot of controversy that look these two players they shouldn't be in the national team. But uh, it was resolved very quickly. Hosafi I think only missed one training camp, but that was because of injury. He was invited back into the squad straight away. Shojai missed a couple of squads after that, and everyone started to think maybe this is because of what happened and because of the fact that he played against the Israeli team, which, by the way, the Iranian Football Federation said uh, they're not going to take actions. Um, the, the the only, and the thing that you're referring to, the, the band for life, it only came, I think, a day after the game. And everyone was so, you know, in the heat of the moment, I think one of the authorities in the sports ministry came out and said, by the way, these two players won't be invited, which they had no authority uh, to choose who comes and goes into the national team anyway. And the Iranian face said, um, who gets in- invited to the national team and who doesn't is completely up to Carlos Kairoj. We wouldn't have a say. And there was a lot of worry that Masoud Shujai hasn't been involved because of that, but he was invited, I think, into the March squad. And then he's he's into the final 24 for the World Cup as well. So I would say it was, it was resolved pretty quickly, even though uh, the Masoud Shujai exclusion kind of raised a few eyebrows at the beginning. Final question for you, Sina, here on Iran, and then I'll ask the same question to Benjamin. It's pretty clear that if there's a path out of this group for either Iran or Morocco, or at least it seems that way, it probably starts with getting three points in that opening match between the two sides as Spain and Portugal go at it on the same day. How important is that match for Iran? And do you think that they can pull that out and then kind of find their way out of the rest of this group? Just going back to what Benjamin said earlier, um, when I was watching the draw live and uh, you know, there was Spain and Portugal first and I was hoping that we wouldn't be in this group and we ended up being in the group. But then when the pot four draw was happening, I was hoping, please, I, I don't want Morocco because I know how Morocco play. I know they play very similar to us and that's something that we've always struggled against. I've got a lot of respect for Herve Renard as, as a manager and... Uh, I think that was the toughest part part of the draw because we needed someone we can beat and Morocco are very, very far from being a, an easy, easy opposition. But as you said, that's a game that I think both Iran and Morocco will have to go in for the win if they want to have any hopes of, of, of going further up into the competition. Um, I think we, we, have, we have a good chance. Um, I, I'm hopeful because I know Kerouche will work on... On, uh, on certain tactics to do, to deal with uh, Morocco and the and the threats that they pose. I know one of the things that um, Iranian experts in Iran are generally um, optimistic about is, um, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but they say that Morocco lacks a real number nine, a goal-scoring number nine, 
And um, I think they're taking that as a huge advantage for Iran, that um, they don't have a number nine to rely on, whereas Iran does. And, and I think if they are right, then, then that's where we might win the game. The fact that maybe maybe Morocco wouldn't pose as much a threat as they might think, although that's, of course, not. I wouldn't say that's uh, that's true at all, but I think they are they are clutching us draws there slightly. But... Um, I'm 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 hopeful, but I think if we end up getting a draw in that game, I think both teams are out. Um, I think after the game against Morocco, a lot of people are uh, kind of optimistic about the game against Portugal, um, thinking that we can get something out of that game. I mean, there are there are even I've even spoke to people who say there is more chance of us getting something against Portugal than there is against Morocco, which I don't know says more about Morocco or, or Portugal. I leave that up to you, but um, I think it's kind of difficult by the third game. It, it'd be very difficult for the for the team to perform at a very high level in that third game. But as I said, if if either team want to want to go further, they have to go for the win, and it makes it definitely makes for a, for an interesting watch because both teams are defensive, so it'll be interesting to see how they approach the game. And Benjamin, to you as well, how do you see that first match for Morocco and the importance of it to their chances of advancing from the group? Uh, just like Cena said, it's it, that's definitely going to be the decisive game, and that's I'm I'm getting nervous even talking about it because I can. I can I can imagine that's that's going to be a game of of margins, fine margins, and maybe one chance, a uh, piece of brilliance from from a player from either side, and um, yeah, that's that's going to be crucial for us. We we have to to get three points out of that game, and um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be it's going to be really tough. But because um, Cena also mentioned uh, about Portugal and and people thinking that maybe Morocco or Iran will have. A greater chance of beating Portugal than than um, in the than the first game, and and I'm actually one of those who feel like that. I think I think we our our style of play will suit better against against Portugal. I think I haven't seen something from Portugal that convinced me that they will be that they will be that much better than Morocco. I saw them in the Euros where they ended up winning, but didn't really impress me at all in the group stage i don't think they won a single game in the group stage I, i'm sure henry will, will will talk us through through that even even more precisely but um yeah i i'm i'm convinced that we will definitely be able to get a result against portugal in the second game and in 1986 when we became the first team to progress from the group stage as an african team we actually beat portugal in the in the last game of the group to to progress so it might happen again It'll certainly make for good viewing uh, on that match. All right, Henry, I'll bring you back in to talk about Portugal. You've heard kind of the word of warning from these two that they view Portugal as kind of wounded as they head into this group and potential place where those two sides can pick up points. And I'm pretty sure that's a belief that you have as well, no? Yeah, I, I agree with both of them completely. Um, and yeah, I think Portugal is really going to struggle to get out of this group. It's sort of, you know, these guys are both talking, you know, when you saw that draw on December 1st, you automatically thought, oh, Spain and Portugal are going through. You know, it's two clear favorites, two clear underdogs. Uh, but I really don't think there is, there's, I think there's big separation between Portugal and Spain. And I don't think there's that much separation between Portugal and Morocco specifically. Um, this is a team that, yeah, what they they only won one game in ninety minutes at the Euros, and you know, the Euros are the reason that everybody thinks they have a chance here. It's really the only reason. Um, this is a, this is a flawed team beyond Ronaldo. 
So I'm a bit worried about him. And even Ronaldo, Henry, as as you wrote this week, is is maybe a little flawed when viewed in the context of the Portuguese national team, right? Right, exactly. So they, I mean, obviously they played through him. No team would not play through a player as good as Ronaldo. But he's sort of, uh, many people realize this, like he, he's changed his game over the years. He's not the same player. He's not the, you know, the dribbly winger that he used to be. Um, he's not that flair player. He's essentially a poacher. He's a really good poacher and a really skilled poacher. Um, and he's and he's not he's certainly not one dimensional, um, but he needs service like he's not he, he, he's not a one man team anymore um, like Lionel Messi is, for example. And Portugal aren't really so they have one really good creator in Bernardo Silva. But other than that, you know, but their style doesn't really play to Silva's strengths. And other than that, they're sort of they're just uninspiring going forward. The the, the system just doesn't play to their, their creative player's strengths. Uh, and that could be a problem for Ronaldo in terms of service, yeah. And the defense, Henry, has some question marks in it as well. A lot of it is very old. Uh, do you Could you see a scenario in which Fernando Santos opts for a younger option like Ruben Diaz? Or do you think that he's going to stick with those old veterans who are maybe a step slow and then that will affect the way that Portugal play at this World Cup? Right, so that's the decision he has to make. I, I can't see Diaz starting in the opener. Um, what I could see is they get ripped apart by Spain in the opener and then realize that if they're going to take the game to Morocco or Iran, they really have to play a higher line and press a bit more and you know be a bit more progressive. Uh, and then that's when maybe you see Diaz partnering Pepe in defense rather than uh, Bruno Alves or Jose Font. Uh, but I think it'll be Alves or Font in the, in the opener. And as you said, like I really think that's a problem because as it did at Euro 2016 and even more now, it limits the way they can play. They can't play a high line because these guys just don't have the legs to play a high line anymore. And that you know, makes their midfield a bit more cautious uh, because they can't let, like, make these guys exposed. And especially if they want you know, the, the fullbacks, like overlapping fullbacks and crosses are a big part of their attack. They, they love to get crosses into the box. If you're going to do that with two vulnerable center backs or at least one vulnerable center back, you have to be pretty cautious in midfield. And so, again, that's a reason that their creative players aren't able to create as much as they otherwise would be able to. Henry, one of the things that I really liked that you wrote this past week about Portugal and about this group in particular was the potential for Portugal and the words that you used were that they could be playing from behind in this group because they do have their most difficult match against Spain first. Can you explain that a little bit to the audience and and why or if you think they're capable of doing that? Right. So as you guys already mentioned, you know, it's it's Spain-Portugal on the second day of the tournament. And then I think it's also the second day of the tournament. So anyway, the first game of the group is Iran-Morocco. So if somebody gets three points in the Spain-Portugal game, and if somebody gets three points in the Iran-Morocco game, that's a big advantage. Like in in a group in a group that only in a three-game round robin, it's a huge advantage to go into a second game with a three-point advantage. And that, and you know, let's so let's say Morocco wins against Iran on the opening day, and let's say Spain beats Portugal, which I think both of those two things are the expected results. Portugal is going to go into that second game against Morocco knowing that they absolutely have to win. Or they don't absolutely have to, but you know, a draw is problematic, especially if they lose to Spain by multiple goals. And I think that, you know, that dynamic suits Morocco, and it would suit Iran on the final day as well if they only need a draw to 
prevent Portugal from going through or something like that. Because this Portuguese team isn't really built to break down an opponent when it when it has to take the initiative and, and go on the attack. Uh, so that's that's another reason that I'm even more worried about Portugal. Like there, you, you know, we talk about game states, and you know, it like you have a like shot shot conversion rates are higher when you're ahead, and you, you know, it's just it's obviously an advantage to play with a lead. Portugal will essentially be playing, you know, or Morocco could essentially be playing with a lead from the opening tap of that second game. Well, you have not painted a very rosy picture for the Portuguese here, Henry. I want to make you flip this argument now. If Portugal do have success at this World Cup, and if they are successful in this group, why will it be so? Yeah, so I think it's it, it's basically the Euro 2016 argument. It's that they can they can protect those center backs because I mean they have a pretty good defensive midfielder in William Carvalho. Uh, they have, you know, Fernando Santos has had success with this team, and they, they you know, they, they can shut up, shut up shop in games, and they do have the second best player in the world up top who can make a goal, maybe not out of absolutely nothing, but out of very little. Um, and, you know, so if you put 15 crosses into the box for Ronaldo in a game, chances are he's going to get on the end of a few of them, and chances are he's going to put one of those away. Um, so, so that's the argument for Portugal, and it, it, it's that they can basically do what they repeat what they did at Euro 2016. Final question for you, Henry, here on Portugal before we head to the predictions segment of the podcast. Who are the potential breakout players here? A couple of youngsters. Uh, certainly two years ago, it seemed like Renato Sanchez would be here for Portugal, but things have not gone his way, so he's not in the squad. But who do you think are some of those potential breakout players here for Portugal in this squad? So you mentioned Ruben Diaz. He's interesting if he gets to play at center back. Um, the other, uh, there's probably three names in attack. Uh, one of them is almost definitely going to get to play, Andre Silva, um, who I believe had a, like a, a mix a mixed season at Milan this year. Uh, but he's, you know, Portugal striker has been a problem position for Portugal for a while, especially when Cristiano Ronaldo was not playing up top when he was playing on the wing. Um, Andre Silva is like, like they, they wish they would have had Andre Silva at 2012 Euros and the 2014 World Cup. Um, he's, he's sort of that striker that they've been missing in the past. Uh, and then two guys that will almost certainly come off the bench uh, and might not even get in games at all, but you know, could be wild cards off the bench are Gelson Martins from, uh, from Sporting in Portugal and Goncalo Guedes from Valencia. Uh, they're both you know, tricky, good on the ball. Um, attackers, playmakers who can really play, you know, they could play in a central role behind a striker um, or wide. Uh, so so they're, they don't really fit into Santos' system, like sort of as we've talked about. But if Portugal needs a goal, these are guys that could come on, you know, excite. And then if they do have success off the bench, maybe, they're, maybe they factor in later on in the tournament. Intrigued to see this Portugal side at the World Cup. I, I'm of the opinion, as you are, that they could be in for quite a challenge in this group, certainly more so than maybe initially uh, expected when that draw did happen. All right, Benjamin, I want to come to you first to get your Group B prediction. It's time to put you on the spot. Is it the big two of Spain and Portugal you see coming out, or do you think Morocco or Iran can, can pull off an upset? Oh, even even if I actually thought that um, Spain and Portugal would go through, I, I as a as a as a Moroccan, I would have to say Morocco either way. But I honestly feel like we have a chance. I think with all the excitement and joy coming into the World Cup, I've seen uh, the squad now uh, gathering together. Everyone seems to be 
happy and excited. No injury concerns. Uh, great results in friendlies as well. I think I think we'd have a, I think we'll have a chance. I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with second place. All right, Cena. How about for you? Do you think Iran have enough to get out of this group, or do you think it will be some other combination of teams that get out of this difficult group B? Um, well, in the past, I've had a tendency of, of jinxing things, and whenever I've predicted Iran to do well, they they tend to disappoint me. So I'm gonna go. For the opposite, I'm going to go against Iran, hoping that they will they they will prove me wrong. I think the first game is is very difficult. It's, it's really really difficult against Morocco. But one thing I think as well that makes Iran and Morocco very difficult for Portugal and Spain is the fact that generally with African and Asian teams, uh, there's been some great squads in in the past 20, 30 years. But what usually is their downfall is is a lack of a, a great tactician or a manager that puts them together whereas these two teams definitely have that and i think that's why they are they should be taken a lot more seriously um than they are uh, before the tournament i think i i do believe iran or morocco uh, will go through um but i'm gonna go for portugal and spain uh, just because I'm I'm kind of superstitious when it comes to these things, uh, but I'm hoping that Iran can can prove me wrong and and make history. Can't blame you for doing that. I, I wouldn't want to jinx my nation either with a pick. All right, Henry, I want to come to you now. What's your prediction for this group? How do you see it? Yeah, I'm going Spain and Morocco. I've uh, sort of for for all the reasons that I've mentioned already, and for some of the reasons that Benjamin um, explicated for for Morocco. Uh, I really like this Morocco team, um, and I'm just not sold on Portugal at all. I think they're it, I, I think I, I think there's a chance that this Portugal campaign looks a lot like twenty fourteen where they get smashed in the opening game and then can't quite make it up in the in the remaining game. So yeah I'll go for Spain and Morocco. Just one last question guys. Sorry. Um is there any possibility that we see Spain kind of falling by the wayside or is the are we are we hundred percent confident that Spain will go through no matter what? I'm I'm pretty confident. Um, I, I could see them. I could I could really see them struggling in any of the three games, actually, um, because as we've as we said, like I think these teams conceded a combined nine goals in the final round of qualifying or something like that. These four teams. So there's a lot of good defensive, you know, defensive ability here. So yes, I think they could struggle, but I can't see them. I think they're much more solid defensively than they were four years ago, and I can't really see them dropping points in multiple games or and certainly not losing multiple games i think i'm with henry of that opinion you could see a scenario i think maybe in which spain win this group with only seven or six points but it's hard to envision a scenario in which they're really truly in trouble in this group and i think a lot of that will start with how well i think they'll start against portugal i'll throw my prediction in the ring before we get to these guys quickly for plugs I like Spain to come out of this group first, and I actually like Iran to come out second. I was impressed with what I saw of them in Asian qualifying. I like their defense. Uh, I think they're definitely the dark horse pick here in this group, but I think they'll do enough to get the three points against Morocco, and then enough in their final two matches to come out of this group in second. Well, thank you to all three of these guys for coming on today. It's been a pleasurable conversation for sure. Benjamin, I want to come to you. Where can the listeners find you on social media? And is there anything you'd like to plug? My social media is actually the one I'm using now is um, uh, Magritfoot, which is uh, a Twitter page I started, I think it's two months ago now, uh, covering Moroccan football, both abroad and domestic. Yeah, if you're interested in, in 
following Moroccan football in English, that's the place to go. Cheers. We'll be sure to do that. Sina, how about for you? Where can the listeners find you on Twitter? And is there anything you'd like to plug right now? Well, firstly, it's been a pleasure to be on this podcast with you guys. It's, it's been a, a great discussion. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Sina underscore S-A. That's S-I-N. Double A underscore SA. And we do have a, a podcast uh, called Golbezan, which concentrates on Iranian football in English. And uh, we cover um, uh, domestic and uh, the national domestic football and the national team. And we've had uh, multiple um, interviews with the players uh, as well as Carlos Kerridge himself. So uh, make sure to check that out and uh, it'll be great to hear from you guys as well. And Henry, finally, as I said at the start, so good to finally get you on one of these podcasts. Where can the listeners find you on Twitter? And I know that you've been doing plenty of work for Yahoo lately. Is there anything in particular you want to plug? Um, not in particular, but yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Henry Bushnell. Um, just my name with no space, obviously. Um, yeah, or you can go to the soccer page at Yahoo Sports, uh, sports.yahoo.com, I believe it is. Uh, you can find all our content there. We've had a lot of uh, U.S. men's national team stuff there recently, but we've rolled. I've rolled out a preview for all 32 teams of the World Cup, and we're uh, group previews are underway right now. And by the time you listen to this, they all eight might be up as well. So yeah, that's all for me. I really, really enjoyed this, guys. Thanks everybody for coming on. You can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore James nine zero six. Be sure to follow the World Football Index on social media as well for all the latest from us, including all of our other World Cup group preview podcast but all that's left for me to say is thank you to these guys for coming on the show thank you to you the listener for listening and goodbye